Hey, everybody. This is Tom Salami of Device Talks. Great to have you back here on the Device Talks weekly podcast. Once again, we have a great episode for you. First order of business, I'm going to introduce you to our new team member of Device Talks, Kayleen Brown, our managing editor. Kayleen and I will tell you a bit about uh, how we came to know each other. She's got a great memory, better than mine. And uh, it's just been fantastic to have her as part of the Device Talks team. Uh, we started working together well from day one. And uh, she's helped me bring tremendous order to what we're already doing and with her talents on content and interviewing and uh, just strategic planning and vision, frankly, we're going to be doing a lot of great things at Device Talk. So uh, you'll get to talk to Kayleen, get to hear her for the first time. She will be back on this and other podcasts. I promise you that. Next, we'll connect with Lisa Carmel and Stephanie Jones. They are the co-chairs of the MedTech Vision event, which, of course, is being put on by our partners, MedTech Women. MedTech Women is a great organization. They've helped us a tremendous amount at Device Talks. And uh, we're excited to uh, talk a bit about their upcoming meeting, which is happening on September 12th at the Rosewood in Menlo Park. So make sure you go to medtechwomen.org. Check out uh, their agenda. Again, their meeting is September 12th. They'll, uh, Lisa will reveal in the interview they have 30 spots left. They have a cap. So uh, if this is something that appeals to you, I wouldn't wait. Go to medtechwomen.org. Finally, I get to speak with a very cool neuro company. I talked with Jacob Robinson. He is founder and CEO of Motif Neurotech. And Stephen Getz, he is the new chief technology officer at Motif. Stephen uh, joined Motif from Medtronic, where he had worked in their neuromodulation business. So, of course, I wanted to find out what caught Stephen's attention, why he opted to leave Medtronic for this startup, because there's a lot going on out in the neurospace. And uh, Steve and Jacob tell a great story. Motif is a company to watch. As I said, there's a lot going on in neurotech, and we're uh, certainly paying attention to that. Uh, at Device Talks and Neurotech and neuromodulation will be a huge part of uh, Device Talks West going forward. If you look at the report uh, that Jonathan Norris and his team just put out from HSBC, which of course is the report he used to do for SVB, uh, neuromodulation companies have received a, a, a lion's share or a large amount, not a lion's share, a large amount of the venture capital money going to medtech companies. And uh, there's lots of reason why, reasons why. And we'll explore that at Device Talks West. We'll have a panel of neuromodulation leaders talking about where the space is, where it's going, how they're building a market. We'll have presentations from uh, larger OEMs like Boston Scientific about uh, their neuromodulation programs. And uh, we'll have some pretty exciting uh, neuromodulation startup companies or smaller companies that uh, are really going to change the game. So if neurotech, neuromodulation, is in your wheelhouse. If it's an interest to you, you'll want to be at Device Talks West, which of course is happening on October 18th and 19th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. Uh, just going over the registration numbers right now. They are fantastic. Uh, we are leagues ahead of where we were last year. I'm not putting a cap on our tickets. Uh, there's plenty left. So uh, this isn't good FOMO talk, but uh, I'll be honest, it's going to be a great two days, and I really do hope you'll join us there. You can still register and receive our early bird rate, which is only three ninety five. dollars uh, You can sign up for a networking uh, session that we haven't we didn't do this last year, but we'll have a cocktail reception the day before the conference starts. 
and uh, you can register for that as well. So it would be just terrific to see you there. Go to devicetalks.com, check out the agenda, check out the growing speaker list. We're going to keep adding speakers, I promise you. And uh, and please do register because it would be great to see you at Device Talks West. All right, I think I, I've run out of things to promote. We put out an Abitalks this year, this week, so make sure you check that out. This is our second episode. Of course, you can subscribe to the Device Talks podcast network on any major podcast application. All right, let us uh, roll into uh, my conversation with Kayleen Brown. Then we'll talk with Lisa Carmel and Stephanie Jones, and finally we'll uh, hear what's up at Motif Neurotech from Stephen Getz, the new Chief Technology Officer, and Jacob Robinson, founder and CEO. Let's go. All right, you ready for this? Ready. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. I do not have my podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, here, but I am thrilled to finally have Kayleen Brown, our new Device Talks Managing Editor on the podcast. Kayleen Brown, welcome. Whoop, whoop. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's been an exciting journey so far and culminating with today's discussion on device talks weekly yeah no no one can see the smile just 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 <laughs> racing across my face i'm just so thrilled to have you on the podcast and you've been part of device talks for three or four months now you, you came aboard yes. in march and uh i was smiling back then too because uh to, to just give everyone some background on what kayleen will be, has been doing for us and what little bit maybe of what you will be doing for us the podcast the, the everything was just way too much for a brain like mine <laughs> and i needed someone who had the ability to not only not only knows medtech deeply and kayleen we'll get into your background in a moment but just knows how to produce great content knows how to keep the trains on the tracks knows how to keep track of all the projects and uh i'm so grateful that you were able to come aboard Device Talks and, and bring all of those skill sets, uh, as well as a fresh perspective. And I know I'm rambling right now, but folks, you have no idea how happy I am. So, Kayleen, <laughs> talk a bit about your background. We've known each other for just for just a little bit. It's hard to, hard to believe. That's a nice way of putting it. But first, thank you for those generous statements. Oh, it is such I mean a pleasure. Oh, it really is such a pleasure on my end to join your team and work with you. Uh, so we have known each other for 15 years yep. and have worked around each other in that decade and a half, which seems shocking to me. Uh, we, I'll actually always remember the time that we met. Uh, it was at Elsevier Business Intelligence. Mm -hmm. It was my first real job out of university and I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to be in medical device intelligence yes. and uh, exactly. And I had started on the sales and marketing side of the business. And I was trying to claw my way into the editorial side of the business where I really saw my home. And we had a company-wide meeting and I was able to meet all of the editors for the publications out of Elsevier. And that's where I met you, Tom. And I was so very impressed with the way you thought about content. And you saw that content wasn't limited to uh, 
a, a hold in your hand magazine, you saw that that same information that's incredibly valuable can be disseminated through many different means. Um, and that was a perspective at the time, 15 years ago, that I had not heard a single other person communicate. Wow. So I knew this is somebody that I want to stay in contact with. And we absolutely have. Uh, and it's been absolutely my pleasure to talk with you over the last 15 years, share our career stories with each other, uh, be a support for each other. And now, since March of 2023, work together in building the Device Talks brand. Absolutely. No, that's great. And that's a great memory you have. Uh, I know I held those thoughts. I don't remember specifically sharing them. I'm fairly sure that you and I were probably the only people in the room who maybe we it connected with. But uh, here we are now, 15 years later, and we're in this giant sandbox of Device Talks content. And uh, we've been we've been quite busy building some some very cool things and, and there's more to come. What's cool about where we are today with social media is yeah, we, we did go our separate ways in 2014. I got uh, removed from Elsevier Business. Oh, actually, it was, uh, yeah, it was Informa at the time. Sorry, Informa. And I went on to do other things and I was able to watch you. You actually remained, but then you went on to do other things. And because of LinkedIn... I got to watch the cool videos you were making as MedTech Millennial, and you could talk a little bit about that. And uh, you can keep track of your friends and colleagues and see what they're doing and say, gee, that's neat. I wish I did that. That was very cool. And uh, as you sort of indicated, you can kind of watch each other's progress without actually communicating. So talk about that period of time where our uh, our trains diverge onto different tracks. What, what were you doing as the, uh, as the hashtag MedTech Millennial? Oh, well, thank you for that introduction. Uh, I do see myself as a medtech millennial. Uh, at the time, it was a very novel idea. Millennials were getting a lot of attention. Uh, but I've always seen myself as part of the medtech community. I have been a, a an appreciator of technology my entire life. But what I really wanted out of my career and the the way that I spend my time and dedicate my time is how do we help not just the people in our community, but outside of our community. And mm -hmm. from my perspective, medical care and healthcare was the way to do it. So marrying medical with technology for me was a no-brainer. Uh, so that brings us to Elsevier. I had a couple of uh, positions prior to that that gave me the experience where I could uh, really thrive at Elsevier. Uh, after Elsevier, I continued on with medical device intelligence. I worked with a company called SmartTrack Business Intelligence, which was a wonderful way to learn how to really see uh, the data side of the business and how to interpret data. Uh, I started writing for that organization. That was, I think I had mentioned, uh, I was trying to claw my way into the editorial <laughs> side of the business. Uh, so that was really the bridge uh, to the gap. I was able to take the commercial lessons that I had learned along the way and take them with me uh, to Smart Track. Uh, from there, I actually went to a company called MedTech Strategist, mm -hmm. where I really 
I feel came into my own as medtech millennial, and I hosted a show called Meet the Innovators, as well as another show called Meet the Influencers. So one talking about the innovators who are creating these amazing new technologies in devices, and then the others, the supporters who help make that um, continuum of product development really happen from ideation to go to market. Uh, and that was an absolute thrill. And kind of coming from there, I realized that the the really influential point is medtech media. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where I really honed my next steps into how can I leverage these amazing media platforms and, again, the way to disseminate information to communicate those stories, the people behind the devices, the devices themselves, and get it to a broader audience and really make my passion for medical devices uh, more global and uh, to get all of the other people who don't have the privilege that I have to learn about these incredible innovations and, you know, share what's coming out, uh, get more people involved, more people excited, and hopefully more awareness of the medical device industry. That's great. No, I remember you doing the videos. I was doing similar videos for another company called Healthogy with, for MedTech and for ophthalmology. And uh, I remember I, I would have a, a, a camera person with lights and kind of a little setup. You got along with uh, just just uh, some chewing gum, some MacGyver tactics, an iPhone, and created some fantastic content. So folks out there should certainly look for for these. They still exist out there on YouTube, I'm sure. And um, the fact that we're we're coming together at this point, I think it's great that we for, sort of formed both formed our skill sets separately. Now we're combining onto the same track again in a good way. We're not going to collide. We're actually we're actually synced up. And uh, I. I I want to share all the stuff we've been talking about doing. Kaylee and I just keep throwing ideas over Slack and, and over Zoom all day long. We've got a lot of great things coming our way, but I think we want to let them form a little more before we, we share them. But needless to say, buckle up, Device Talks folks, because uh, we're working with some great partners and we've got some really cool content coming out. And uh, you're going to be hearing a lot more from, from Kayleen Brown uh, in the future. I promise you that. Here, here, Tom. Thank you for having me, and I'm excited to see what we do in the future. Right, well, happy to have our friends from MedTech Women on board the podcast to talk about the upcoming MedTech Vision Conference. It's happening on September 12th. We have with us Stephanie Jones. She's Senior Vice President of Regulatory Quality and Clinical Systems at Evidation Health, and Lisa Carmel. She's Executive Vice President of Global Strategic Partnerships at Veronex. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. And Stephanie, welcome to you as well. Thanks. Super excited to talk about our upcoming conference. Yeah. How is how is the process of, of putting this conference together? We'll get into the details in a moment. I know Kayleen has some questions, but what's the uh, what's the experience been like for you? Uh, so I've actually been involved in MedTech Women for a few years now in different kind of capacities, helping on different parts of conference organizations. So I first started on helping on the marketing committee and getting the app going and, and kind of continued to uh get to attend and be a part of seeing that organization. So uh, a few years ago when they asked me to co-chair, I'd had a number of conferences under my belt and gotten to see some really great women lead through that. Um, So I got paired up with Lisa to also be my co-chair, but I've gotten to see a lot of great women put this together uh, and and learn from their experience as well as having attended a number of myself um, to to help us set those up. Great. 
And Lisa, I know you've been uh, part of our Device Talks meetings early on. Uh, you so you've got a familiar with conferences, but what's it like putting uh, putting the show together together with with Stephanie? But putting it uh, putting it together yourselves. You know, I'd say it's um, it's been fantastic because what it allows you to do is work with um, great women across you know across the different boundaries and and uh, different areas of of med tech, uh, venture capitalists, uh, other service providers, strategic startups, uh, everyone's coming in and working together. And it's, it's, uh, it's a high point in the week when we have our calls. It's, it's a lot of fun. And right now I'd say Stephanie, I can finish each other's sentences after doing this now for the third year. So Lisa, Stephanie, uh, Tom and I understand the lift needed to put an in-person conference like MedTech Vision together. It takes so much time, so many resources. So with that, ultimately, what is your goal and what impact do you hope MedTech Vision will make or will have? I think that um, the impact is to pull many leaders in uh, in our MedTech community together and elevate the voices of women leaders. The topics aren't about being a woman in med tech, rather it's about compelling rich content that's at at the top of mind, that's compelling for us as as an audience. And um, we really pride ourselves in amazing content, amazing speakers. And, um, And of course, when you pull all of that energy together, you just have this robust, um, networking and I think a deeper connection and inspiration that you don't typically get at your run-of-the-mill conference. I think the other thing that we do that's pretty unique is we always have kind of the patient keynote and the patient voice of our conference. So when you talk about really reinvigorating us and, and reminding us why we all do what we do, it's so easy to get focused in the day-to-day and your to-do list that really kind of reminding us why why we're all here with with bringing the the patient to the forefront again I think is also super energizing and, and something that's really unique to our conference well I know Tom would agree with me when I say that and the people behind the devices and people behind the industry is really where you tell the best stories and you get the most engagement uh, so I'm not surprised at all that that is uh, one of your driving forces which leads me to talk about this year's theme. There's countless pressing issues, urgent needs uh, in the entire medical device and health landscape. So how did you drill down to this year's specific theme? Well, it was quite circuitous, I would say. Um, (laughs) We actually, (laughs) we, uh, you know, there's a real art to figuring out what's going to be the most compelling or, or very compelling topic nine to 12 months in advance, right? Um, because, um, you know, it could go in many different directions, especially as we've seen uh, post, you know, with a, when you've got a pandemic or, uh, to deal with. Amen. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, um, and so I would say that we had a different theme in mind, but one of the panels was around health equity. And um, we started to you know, try to drill down, well, what should that health equity panel be about? And it could go in, I don't know how many different directions. And um, and then we realized the more we uh, talked about health equity, that health equity was became our theme. Stephanie, anything to add before we drill down the drill down and talk about themes uh, or the panels and the topics within the theme? Yeah, I think it was just, it was an interesting evolution. And also it's a really meaty topic. You know, I think this 
we're hoping that this is the start of continued conversations or the continuation of other conversations. But this is a problem that we all collectively have to come together to solve, and it is not going to be solved overnight. So um, we're really hoping that this spurs the right conversations within the audience to bring back so that we're all really focused on this for years to come. But co- because collectively to solve this problem, you know, we all really have to work together across a variety of different domains to, to continue to elevate and create equitable healthcare for everybody. I think it's great that you've got that focus. I mean, it's something that we've tried to include in, in device talks meetings. And now that we're thinking, I'm trying to remember what I, where I have it represented in, in our upcoming meeting, but we certainly had it at device talks Boston uh, a few times. And you're right. You, you try to put together a panel and you try to representatives from different perspectives. And it ends up being such a high level conversation that you're not even sure if you get a there, there. Um, so it's, uh, makes a great deal of sense to really focus down and, and try to tackle each, give each speaker's perspective, their own panel and their own opportunity to, to, to flush out ideas and hopefully find some solutions. So, so kudos to you for sure. I definitely second that, which leads me, Tom, to, uh, dig into what's the process like now you have your theme, which was continuing to evolve out of that theme. There's pressing topics, pressing, pressing issues that you want to dig into. What was the process like for identifying and then selecting the panel topics and the right person to represent those topics? Well, uh, we drilled down on and came up with three distinctly different panels so that we can tackle the issue in three, I think, meaty topics. But I think one thing that Stephanie and I are aligned on because it was so successful last year is making sure that every panel has a multifaceted uh, lineup. Someone from a large strategic, someone from a startup, someone from an industry thought leader like the FDA, an investor, a service provider that has a core specialty in that space so that the ideas, the conversation can be approached and discussed in a way that everyone in the room can gain from. That's a really unique approach. And I have to applaud that that inclusiveness. And I think that that's a theme that transcends your events over the years is this inclusiveness. Uh, would you mind sharing what your three main topics and panels are about? Yeah, I actually want to hit on the inclusiveness just a little bit more. I think, you know, us as an organization um, have really tried to become more intentional, right? So it was founded on this idea of inclusiveness for women and highlighting women exact. So we also found out and called ourselves out that like we didn't have a lot of diversity in between the speakers that we are showcasing and our audience. And so we've tried to be really intentional about it. So this process that we go through to really make sure that we're having rich conversations at the panels, it takes a little bit more time. It's not just calling the first person that comes to mind and those types of things. But what came out of it last year was such a rich conversation and such great, like healthy tension and dynamics and points of view on the stage that it was really... I would say energizing for, for a lot of folks. So, um, you know, being inclusive and, and the kind of ties in with our theme, right? But like health equity and being inclusive in a smaller organization take a lot of intention and intentional action. And so as we thought about more about our theme, you know, obviously it is a, a group of women. And so women's health became one of the panels. Um, I think one of the things that we 
as women often are told is like, you know, really just about maternal health. And we know that the problem is much, much larger than that. And so our intention this year is to make sure it's not just a, what we're calling a below the belt topic. You know, we know that we're more susceptible or women are more susceptible to heart attack deaths, depression, anxiety than males, and all sorts of different things. And we also know that the investment in that is far less than in other disease areas. So that's really one that we want to have a, a good conversation on. Uh, the next one is about driving inclusive design as our gold standard, right? So it's not enough to do things after they're already on market. You actually have to be really intentional to make sure you understand who your product is serving all across the board. And you have to pull that into early phase R&D, right? How do you make sure that it works for people of different socioeconomic status, different races and skin colors, right? Different genetic backgrounds. Um, And how does that play through? So really talking about how do we drive that as the new gold standard instead of an afterthought. And then finally, really talking about better healthcare access and the attractive return on investment that that comes from, right? Like this doesn't have to be a uh, like a charity endeavor, but there's actually like meeting the broader needs of a broader market can actually make a lot of business sense. So really trying to tie that out and how successful companies have done it and shown that there's a business case for it, right? Like this isn't just a whole bunch of nonprofit companies creating devices to, to help, but um, there's a lot of business sense in making sure that it's not just the white population or the white male population that is served by devices in our industry. Stephanie, there's two questions that came out of what you just said. So I'll start with the broader question. How do these three themes interact and how do you see maybe one advancement or next step that comes out of one can trigger changes in the others? Oh, that's a good question. So like, Day of, there are really pretty independent conversations with different sets of folks who are part of it. But the reality is that like nothing is totally independent. When you talk about women's health, you also have to talk about inclusive design early on in the women's health piece of it. And again, when you talk about investment in healthcare, investors want to see that they are going to have a return on their investment. So they're all like intertwined, but we're really, as we, as we prep the panels, really trying to focus on a few core themes in that domain space so that we're really having a rich conversation about that. Um, And we're hoping that, you know, everybody's going to come from a different place. Not everybody's going to be involved in R and D. And so they might not have as much, maybe the inclusive design will be informative, but maybe there's not a lot to action on, but we're hoping that somebody gets something from at least one of these panels that they can take back and either teach somebody, call out in a meeting that we are missing on something or do anything like that, right? Because it's all these little baby steps that all of us at all levels of an organization can start to take to make sure that as an ecosystem, we are, you know, building a more equitable system. How has the response been from folks, from speakers you're talking to? Have you had any trouble finding folks? I know you were initially trying to build that big, that single panel and it grew into multiple panels. Yeah. Once you went there, there's nothing more scary than sort of the, the, the tyranny of the blank agenda page that you have to fill. Was it hard to fill with other speakers or, or did you find there was sort of a, 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 a call to others who, who also see the importance of this topic? You know, it's interesting I didn't think it was going to be hard at all to fill the women's health because there's a line out the door of amazing voices to Mm -hmm. talk about women's health. 
And on the inclusive design, I didn't think there was going to be an issue there because the idea of human-centered design is for all humans, right? So I wasn't worried about that one. I was actually concerned. I don't know, Stephanie, if you were, but I was sort of like, oh, gosh, how are we going to find these amazing stories um, from people that have proven out successfully the ROI in delivering better access? Mm-hmm. And you know what? Um, because you have to talk to people and you might have to talk to a lot of people to get those really compelling stories. But uh, because I think we were, uh, we're a bunch of worry warts on our, our planning committee. <laughs> that we, you have to be. We, we all are. <laughs> oh, gosh. What, are, what are we, you know, because it's one thing to come up with a, a, a panel theme like that. And you're like, okay, now can we pull it off? Right. And, and we do. We have an amazing roster. It all came together shockingly uh, quickly. I won't tell you how many times I wake up at two in the morning saying, what if no one comes? <laughs> like people have to come. People have to come. So I, I'm yeah, but guess what? We're almost sold out. I mean, uh, I think, let's, yeah, <laughs> let's talk about that. Uh, where, where is we've, we've given the date a few times. Uh, where's it going to be? It's a different location than last year, right? Yeah, it's actually at the Rosewood, which is in Menlo Park, California. So uh, Northern California. So similar geographic location to last year, uh, but a different hotel. And how uh, how can folks uh, register? You said you're almost sold out. Are you just saying that, or are you really almost sold out? Is this a marketing gimmick? Because <laughs> <really don't. laughs> yeah. I no, want to borrow less, it. For... <laughs> there's less than 30 seats available, okay. and there's a capacity of like 250. And that's because we have amazing sponsors uh, that sign up, and they get seats uh with their sponsorship so um luckily we're in a an enviable position where we know we are going to sell out so we do have at last count close to 30 seats still available so if you're if anyone's listening to this and they're interested in going they should quickly go to medtechwomen.org and you'll see the event and you can register on the website uh, looking at the page right now uh, and I see you've got a speaker, I believe she was on the podcast. Your keynote uh, brings an interesting story. You want to talk a moment about that? You mean Hafiza Mohammed? Yes, I do. Yeah, she's amazing. I've had a chance to, to connect with her. I know she's super excited. She kind of brings this really interesting background as like a, both like a patient advocate for, you know, her own family, but also having started a company to solve the problem. So she is our patient keynote, really going to talk about the story and the evolution there. But she's also, again, seen this need because of her own personal experiences and started a company to try and solve it. And so it's a really interesting tie between both like the patient viewpoint, but also like the med tech industry viewpoint. And so she's got a ton of energy, a great story, a heartbreaking story. And I think it will be a really just great way to start the day again bringing us all back to why we're here and why the work that we're doing is so important both on you know patients generally but more equitable health care for everybody and i also think it's bringing a topic that we really haven't addressed most recently that's of top of mind and that's um, mental health and um you know i i i think that afiza is a, an amazing person entrepreneur, mom, 
uh, like like uh, many of us, and um, and I think she brings a really interesting um, discussion around health equity too. Yeah, her, her company is Yumi Healthcare, and we did have her on the podcast back in February. She was a finalist for uh, the MedTech Color uh, Pitch Contest, and. She won. Uh, and she won. Thank you. I was just I'm Googling that. I thought she did, but I didn't want to give her. She's the winner yeah. of the MedTech Color. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, so she definitely deserves the attention. And I do remember her story and some other stories from the finalists as well. Just, again, people who were just inspired by their own, as many people are in our industry, by their own personal experiences and turning that into action. So uh, that's going to be a great story to hear for sure. Yeah. I think that everyone deserves a good dose of Hafisa Muhammad. She's like <laughs> inspiration to the T. Fantastic. That's a that's a good selling point right there. We're gonna be knocking out those 30 tickets pretty quick with uh with that story. So people can go to medtechwomen.org. We'll also put the the link in the uh in the show notes so uh they can they can register easily there by going to uh our website or uh or our SoundCloud channel. Kaylin, anything else to uh close up on? I just want to communicate my enthusiasm and appreciation for uh, hearing from Lisa and Stephanie and joining the event on September 12th. And I will see you in Menlo Park. And again, thank you so much for joining us. Can't wait. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Lisa and Stephanie. We're excited. Kaylene. Thanks, Tom. Well, Jacob Robinson and Steve Gutz, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, indeed. So w- the news this week was Steve, you're you're leaving Medtronic to to join Motif Neurotech, a, a startup I hadn't heard of before, and I was excited to to understand why you made that move. I always love learning more about those career pivots, but I also love learning about startups. So this is a twofer call for me, where I can uh, learn a bit about Motif Neurotech. So Steve, why don't we let uh, Jacob take the lead here for a second, Jacob? Tell us a bit about your career. How do you get to do what you do? I understand you're a professor at Rice University, but you're also a co-founder of a startup. So that's kind of a cool uh, transition. Tell us about your background a bit, and then uh, let's hear about the founding of Motif Neurotech. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm very uh, new, I guess, to the the startup space. The company is only about a year and a half old, so maybe why it hasn't been on your radar yet. But the technology that we've developed that forms the core of the company has been something we've been working on for about a decade in my research group at uh, Rice University. A little bit about how we got here. I've been in the neurotechnology space for about a decade as an academic. So in 2012, I founded a research group at Rice to create better interfaces to the, the brain and body to stimulate record neural activity. And we worked on a variety of projects. We were fortunate to get some DARPA funding on a couple of brain computer interface programs. And one of the challenges that my lab was working on was to figure out how we might be able to make brain interfaces smaller, less invasive, so that the surgical approach that might be necessary to get close to the brain where you can get accurate stimulation recording might be easier for people to do. Now, we struggled with this because there's a big engineering challenge, which is how do you create an implant that's really tiny. And when I say tiny, I mean, you know, the size of a pea and eventually the size of a grain of rice. And that problem is how do we get enough energy inside that, that tiny device? Now, I've been trained in physics and a lot of the folks in my lab were physicists. And we came across a technology that allowed us to efficiently deliver energy wirelessly that could support the kinds of power needed for neural interfaces. Hmm. And once we made that breakthrough, I was like, wow, this is really cool. 
but there's only so far you can take a technology in your research group, you know, to really take it, as you probably appreciate, to really take it into a market requires significant capital and time and expertise from, you know, experienced med tech professionals. And so faced with that prospect, I was like, you know, for this thing to really, really make an impact, I wanted to see it survive as a company. And so I took a leave of absence from Rice and we started to basically build on that core technology to create a therapeutic implant that might be delivered with a 20-minute outpatient procedure to address indications broadly across neuromodulation. Wow. Just take me to a moment where the moment that you were sort of staring at the two prongs of the fork in the road. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what, what kicked you over to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start this company because that's, that's a big move. It was a big move and, and terrifying, right? I'm a tenured professor, so I got this cushy job for life. So, <laughs> um, you know, like, yeah, startups sound cool, but it turns out it's a lot of work. So, you know, there's a big life choice that has to be made. If I rewind, there was one moment in particular that stands out when I was having a conversation with a colleague and friend of mine, Tim Gardner, who was on the founding team at Neuralink. And I had known him as an academic when he was at Boston University. And he had followed our work. He saw what we were doing. And he was like, dude, you really have something here that could really make an impact in this space. And, and you really have the beginnings of a company. And for him to say that with his experience, and it was already kind of in the back of my mind, like, should I do this? Should I not do this? And, and I think Tim's encouragement really kind of pushed me over the edge. And I started having conversations and had really tremendous reception from some of the early investors I reached out to. Actually, very early on, I talked to some folks at Medtronic and got positive feedback, Steve being one of them. And I felt like the reception was really warm when I started to talk about what we were doing. And in some ways, the technology was more advanced than the company was. And for a seed stage company, we had prototypes that were pretty far along. So I felt really confident once I started to take that and then took a professional leave from my tenured position and have been running with this full-time for about a year and a half now. That's really exciting. Steve, let's let's bring you into the conversation. From my deep analysis of your LinkedIn profile, uh, you're, you started your MedTech career at Medtronic, or, or if not, you've been there for, for a very long time. To bring us, uh, give, give us a little bit of your background, please. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, happy to happy to jump in. Yeah, I, I joined Medtronic very early in my career and very early in the sort of history of neuromodulation at at Medtronic and at, at in in the field. So ninety seven, very early days of spinal cord stim in the U.S. Very very early days of deep brain stimulation in the U.S. The the trials were just in underway or just completing, and and the work in pioneering work in Europe had just kind of you know come to completion or was starting to get traction. So by no uh, intention of my own, ended up on kind of the ground floor of this, this neuromodulation neuroscience platform as it as it kind of started to evolve in Medtronic and other places. And so that was that was luck. I realized very quickly that it was a fascinating place to be, that the amount we didn't know about the nervous system and the brain was just tremendous. And as we started to take what were old, you know, cardiac pacing designs and customize them for for these new applications, that was a really rich, innovative engineering domain. And so I got in on the ground floor, was able to grow my career as that space grew, worked on you know, early days of uh, product development on the spinal cord stimulation systems, the external devices that program them. Uh, that got me in touch with the, the practitioners, the clinicians who do this therapy and the patients. Very, very compelling to see your device or device you worked on change a patient's life. 
and uh, kind of came up through the development ranks. I had the honor to serve as the chief engineer for our deep brain stimulation therapy for a number of years, six or seven years. I spent a while embedded in that business, uh, kind of wearing dual hats, a business hat and a, a kind of technology roadmap, technology strategy. And this was a time where we were bringing forward some really major innovative technologies. So uh, the first devices capable of closed loop therapies in the in the traditional neuromod space, the, the movement disorder space for brain. And so I saw a tremendous amount of really exciting technology development along the way, but I had never had the opportunity to kind of work on a therapy from scratch. Um, you know, there were new therapies created at, at Medtronic at, in the industry while, while I was around, but I was just always kind of adjacent to them. You know, epilepsy is a good example, came up while I was at Medtronic, but I wasn't hands-on. And, and so as I was starting to look for a next step in my career, being connected with Jacob, having seen this great technology and, and thinking, wow, there's, there's going to be a home for this. Uh, when he started to identify this conjunction of minimally invasive, uh, externally powered, and mental health, that just kind of clicked for me. And it was an opportunity for me to, to certainly develop a technology as I've done before, but also be ground floor in this you know, new or reinvented therapy modality. Uh, and that was, that was just something I couldn't, couldn't turn down. I want to I want to explore that moment in a second, but I'd love to. You've you've had a, a front row seat, or at least you've had really good seats to the development of the neuromodulation industry. Compare and contrast, if you would, what's happened over the last twenty years, twenty plus years. How much farther along are we than you know, when we started? As you said, in the late nineties, are we as far as you thought we'd get? And I don't know. Are we? Do you get a sense that we're standing at some sort of cusp of a of a breakthrough for this area? It's been a, it's been a long road. There's certainly the bigger companies are certainly finding success. Some of the smaller companies are rising as well. But it's it seems as if building a, a market for some of these devices has uh, has taken some effort. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll kind of give a, a set of perspectives there. You know, early days in the therapy space, and this is true in, in spinal cord stimulation for pain, also in deep brain stimulation, other other of the traditional neuromod therapies. The primary evidence that first pivotal trial is critical. But then there's a lot of, I'll say, uh, technology refinement that basically makes a, a product better and better within that therapy. And, and I'd say the first 10 or so years of, of my time in the space was that, you know, taking these kind of beg borrowed and stolen cardiac designs and making them fit for purpose for Neuromod, really internalizing the opportunities, you know, and incremental inno- innovation from four electrodes to eight electrodes to 16 electrodes. These are meaningful, but they're not transformational. And then I think there was a phase after that where that incremental refinement was running out of steam and the field was ready for bigger things. And I'd put a, a set of things in there, the, the closed loop devices I mentioned, you know, so not just open loop therapy, dumping energy into the nervous system and not really understanding what it's doing. So the, the sensing systems uh, in the last 10, 10 years have come to the forefront. I think there is tremendous opportunity there. But also a much better understanding of sort of neural coding, the waveforms that we put in, how we communicate more clearly and, and more precisely to the nervous system. And, you know, in spinal cord stimulation, you saw a sort of a, a golden era of waveforms from high frequency to burst to high density to different sort of modalities of modulating glial cells. All of that is, is sort of the second phase of therapy-driven innovation rather than technology-driven innovation. I kind of snap us to the present, I think we're in this sort of possibly entering a golden era where we have established therapies. We also have these potentially transformational technologies. 
and enough neuroscience understanding to know where to look next. And, and that is, I think, a tremendous promise for the field where we have some, some mechanistic understanding of, of some of these systems. We start to understand how the brain communicates to itself, how the brain communicates to the body, how we get measures of that out, biomarkers out, but also critically how we communicate with precision back in. So a little less you know, shouting as loud as we can in the brain to overwhelm those dysfunctional circuits and a little bit more, you know, just whispering, just tweaking the modulation of those circuits in a way that restores function without side effects, without these sort of very high energy, very coarse interventions of the past. So I'm personally very bullish. I, I think we've gone the necessary phases of technology refinement and, and kind of these neuroscience-based tools, first principles-based tools on the encoding and decoding side of neural engineering where the the next 10 years are going to be very, very, very rich. Very cool. So I want to learn, start learning about motif now. And, and but I want to start that conversation, Steve, by just kind of again examining your moment. You're at Medtronic, large company, you've been there for a while. I'm sure you've you've had a lot of opportunities. A lot of I'm guessing other companies have approached you or, or you you've at least contemplated looking at ground floor opportunities. I initially thought maybe the motif opportunity came together through a headhunter or something, but it sounds as if you had interaction with Jacob earlier. But my specific question is, what did you see about the opportunity motif? What, what about it convinced you to pivot in your career right now? And, and how difficult was that pivot? Now you've got a you know a lot of time at a big company. This is not without risk. Everything's with risk, but this is not without risk. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, a big scary step. And that is, you know, both true, but also a part of the motivation. So, you know, really looking for growth opportunities and, and those new experiences, like I mentioned, the, the therapy innovation, but more specifically, why motif and, and not somewhere else? So, so coming up through Neuromod, you know, really believing in the promise of neuroscience, the flip side of that is that slow growth over 20 years makes you eventually very cognizant of the limitations of those traditional approaches. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I love the traditional approach, you know, a device with a lead to, to a target, either battery inside or externally powered, great systems, a lot of runway left there, but some fundamental limitations. They're fairly invasive. The procedures are complex. The management is complex. And so if you, you sort of bang your head on that adoption, you know, penetration of incidents, penetration of, pen, of prevalence problem for long enough, you start to wonder if you know, more of the same isn't the, the best path forward if, if there aren't ways to sort of design around some of those fundamental challenges. And so when I look at what Motif is doing with the minimally invasive, very small uh, device that doesn't actually penetrate the brain and sits on top. So, so removing the, the fear of, you know, effectively of, of poking the brain with a big stick, you know, which is a coarse way of saying, a, you know, stereotactic cannulated procedure, just taking that out of the equation, you know, isn't maybe a more scalable approach. You know, system without all the failure points of a traditional neuromodulation system, which fail in the leads, fail in the interconnections between the, the leads and the can. Again, that whole set of challenges, set of surgical and, and, and patient complications is just obviated with this approach. So, so really looking at this technology as a potentially scalable, you know, scalable means not 10% of the market, but 50% of the market, um, that was really attractive to me. The other thing that was very attractive to me is this isn't a, a sort of from scratch therapy innovation. And so when you sort of think about ways to innovate in the space, you can you can take a, a new technology to an existing therapy. You can take an old technology to a new therapy, or sometimes you can take a new technology to a new therapy. And those latter two are generally harder. You know, when you're reinventing the technology and reinventing the therapy, 
or even just reinventing the therapy. Those are pretty hard. Those are long runway, really challenging. But that first one where you've got a therapy that you kind of understand works, you understand the mechanism and you're bringing just a much, much better mousetrap. And I feel like that's a, a problem that, that Jacob's done a really nice job of identifying with transcranial magnetic stimulation in the market, great understanding, uh, a network of people who believe in that therapy for the right set of patients. He's very severely depressed, treatment re- resistant, uh, depression uh, patients, where we all sort of understand that therapy works, but we also understand it's very, very hard to deliver in its current modality in clinic. Taking a severely depressed patient who might have trouble getting out of bed, bringing them into clinic five days a week for six weeks, man, that's a that's a heavy ask. And knowing that that therapy is is durable but not perfect, you might have a relapse, you might have to do that again in a year. And so that delivery problem of that therapy, really reinventing that with a, a system that can, in principle, be done at home on demand that opens up the door for maintenance modes to prevent that relapse, retreatment at home. That all feels like an incredibly rich innovation space that is already largely de-risked, you know, from Jacob's previous work in in academia, but also this transcranial magnetic thing that exists that allows really fast progress. So, you know, that idea of, man, can we get one of these things to scale with the right mix of invasiveness benefit and and de-risked mechanism? Those things really just came together for me in motif and large way responsible for where I am today uh, versus where I was just a, a month or two ago. Take me to the moment where you were contemplating doing this or not doing this. What pushed you over to the doing this side of the side? Yeah, of yeah it's uh, it's uh, you know it's never easy to make these decisions. But thinking about sort of what I had been able to do at Medtronic, you know, that technology innovation, being at a pretty good place there in, in the brain modulation space with you know recent released uh, brain sensing devices, new leads, you know, a little bit of a sense of, of job done there, and then. Plenty of, certainly, don't get me wrong, plenty of innovation left to go there, but feeling like that was more of a, a thing I had done a lot of, you know, so if you're at a company 26 years, a lot of things are true, but, you know, true novelty in in experiences isn't necessarily one of them. And so when I was sort of weighing, you know, great innovation, but sort of more of that same innovation versus this completely different path, much more on the therapy side with a different technology stack, that opportunity for both personal experience, novelty, but also that question of, is this a better pr- approach to have really, really scaled impact in the space? Those two things together just kind of were the were the tailwind for that decision. And uh, again, really hard, leaving behind a tremendous number of great colleagues at Medtronic was a wonderful place to grow a career, learned so much. And, and uh, you know, some of it is moving on in your career, thinking about how do you give those experiences back and how do you really make that that journey you've taken have impact for that next patient. And it, it just felt like the time was right for me and the time was right for my experience set to go push on this, this new rock uh, up a different hill for a while. Great. Jacob, let's, let's fill out uh, Motif's story a, a bit more. You, you, at the start, you had sort of given me some, some ranges of sizes of your implant. How far along are you in product development? Do you have something you're testing right now? Describe if you would a little in a little more detail what exactly we're talking about in planting, where does it go and how does it work? Yeah. So to understand the story, I think it's, there are kind of two phases of how Motif began. One was the technology story, right? This idea that Steve had mentioned that I had mentioned where, you know, perhaps we're limited in, in adoption for some of these neuromodulation technologies because they're too invasive. And if only we could make them tiny, if we could make them in a form factor that could be delivered 
outpatient without touching the brain. That might really open up the market. But the question remained, what market? Where do we go? Where do we, where do we take it? And you had mentioned, you know, what are the inflection points in this space? And so I began looking, where should we take this technology first? And I was really impressed by some of the new data coming out of transcranial magnetic stimulation. And, you know, as you probably know, this is a, a way to modulate specific regions in the brain, non-invasively, but you have to sit in a chair in the clinic. And usually the effects kind of fade away after a period of weeks or months. And you wear like a, a netting over it, your head, right? You, there's a... Yeah, well, you know, you can either wear a netting or you, or you have to sit really still and, you know, there's some scalp sensations. It's not, it's not often a pleasant experience, but I think the real challenge is, you know, going into a clinic every day. And what if you don't live near them? I live in Houston, right? If I'm trying to go like six miles, that could take me an hour. And if you live in a rural community, there's probably no clinics nearby at all. So that there's this like really compelling data coming out, de-risking the targets telling us that if you could stimulate specific regions on the cortex, you could have really profound effects for people with mental health conditions, which is a huge unmet need. It's one in five Americans suffer a mental Absolutely. health disorder. And drugs often have really challenging side effects because they get distributed through your whole body. And here we are standing at this cusp of the science really being de-risked because we have all this data coming out of TMS, but no way to deliver it broadly to people who need it. And that was kind of my aha moment from an indication. I was like, wow, we don't have to go and discover where to stimulate, how to measure outcomes, which patients to select. All this is already done and it's been done and it's being de-risked at an incredible rate because you can enroll patients in these trials much more rapidly than you can enroll patients in a invasive deep brain stimulation trial. And so those are the two pieces that I was like, wow, de-risked indication, mechanism of action, new technology that can solve the delivery problem. And we started looking specifically at, well, of those mental health indications, what's the most compelling value proposition? And it turns out that for people who suffer from major depressive disorder, about a third of people don't respond to drugs. They're considered treatment resistant, as Steve had mentioned. And what we know is that of that group, about 100,000 people every single year do electroconvulsive therapy, 30,000 people a year do transcranial magnetic stimulation. And if you compare that to the size of neuromodulation markets, that's absolutely massive. And so that was kind of how I imagined bringing the new technology to a new indication is that there's this incredible unmet need, this delivery problem that Steve mentioned, de-risked mechanisms of action. And that's kind of how we, we started moving in that direction. So, so tell us a bit about the device itself. I'm trying. This is a podcast, obviously. I, I love a description of what we're talking about. Is it a? Does it look like a single grain of rice? Does it look like something smaller? How is it implanted? Yeah. Where Where is it implanted, and how does it do what it does without physically touching the brain? Oh yeah, all great questions. So the form factor that we're working with now is a cylinder. It's about the size of your pinky and roughly the thickness of a pea. So think of a, of a pea that you might have. That tiny device gets implanted in the skull above the dura and above the brain. So it never makes contact with the soft tissue and it's done with a standard surgical procedure that can be done outpatient at the bedside. Hmm. So it sits there. It sits there in the skull above the brain, but it's close enough to the brain to stimulate it 
to recruit activity of specific brain regions that we know are effective for helping people with conditions like treatment-resistant depression. We know that from all the TMS data. And it works because we have enough energy, thanks to a wireless power transfer technology that we developed in, in my lab at Rife, to stimulate at a distance where we don't actually need to contact the brain. So it's this high power device that can still be miniaturized to about the size of a pea and implanted in this 14 millimeter diameter hole. We know where to target it from brain imaging and from anatomical mapping that have all been developed thanks to the you know great work from transcranial magnetic stimulation. That's an interesting parallel. I mean, as you were talking, I had in my, I was thinking about the dialysis market, which obviously someone cannot not have dialysis and survive. So they're required to go to the clinic. So they've been required to go to the clinics until you've got the home dialysis systems, which are, have been coming out, been, uh, are definitely more approachable and I think are going to improve care a great deal and are giving those people their lives back. They're not going to a clinic three times a week and spending half a day there. So interesting parallels. How does the power configuration work? Where is the battery that's charging this? Is it inside? I, I guess I'm a little unclear on, on the power source. Yeah, so this is the work that we've done, as I mentioned, for about a decade in the lab. There is no implanted battery on the device. Okay. The device receives all of its energy from a lightweight wearable that we're going to manufacture in the form of a baseball cap. Oh, okay. Will that provide a charge or is that something that needs to be worn whenever the device is operating? Yeah, so with... Exactly. So you'll, you'll wear it when you need the therapy. And we know from TMS that therapy works in as little as 20 minutes a day. Oh, okay. And so, and the, so you the, just need to wear the hat a little bit. Yeah. The idea being you intermittently dose, you run your course of therapy. And as we've seen with TMS, and, and hopefully as we see here, the patient then is, you know, is in remission, maybe for months, maybe for years. And so thinking about a, a traditional actively powered device where you are sort of babysitting that battery, you're checking on it, you're thinking about a replacement surgery someday. That's all stuff you don't want to do when you're when you're better. You don't want to be reminded that, you know, that you were sick and, and maybe you'll be sick again. And so for this modality, which is intermittently dosed and hopefully, you know, only seldom dosed because patients are getting better and staying better, this externally powered architecture is a really good way to go. You have the therapy when you need it. We're actually not limited by the dosing restrictions of in-clinic of number of times a day or duration. So we can actually explore dosing regimes that aren't just aren't feasible with TMS. But then once a patient's better, that system sits dormant waiting for if and when it's needed again in a, in a really patient-friendly, um, experiential way. So I may get up, put the cap on, have my cup of coffee, read the paper, have my therapy in sort of a passive setting. Is that the Absolutely. goal? Absolutely. Yeah. And so we've, we've shifted point of care from a you know, higher acuity to lower acuity center. That's a major trend in healthcare broadly, and especially as we get more cost conscious in the U.S. So that's a win. You know, patients in control, so there's psychological benefits of knowing you have that when you need it. Mm -hmm. And again, there are, there are you know, treat, retreat and other opportunities for sort of monitoring outside of the clinic that start to play into digital therapeutics or in the future, you know, measured signals from these networks to, you know, check in on that network and make sure that relapse doesn't happen or predict when it's coming so you can intervene. So there's there's both a, a really great story today of, hey, this is the right way to treat this therapy. It's the right device architecture, given what we know about intermittent dosing and durability of effect. And it has these, these nice roadmap opportunities in the future to become a, 
you know, sort of a, a you know mental fitness or a, a mental health monitoring diagnostic primary prevention, secondary prevention kind of a system, you know, with some technology add-ons as we build up the, the full architecture. So it's it's got a really good story today. It's got a really good roadmap tomorrow. And, and it just seems to fit this application and what we know about it. Amazing. So let's just talk about the path forward, regulatory. So TMS has been approved for a few mental health conditions. I think major depressive disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety, depression. Are you targeting one particular condition going forward? And is it a 510K pathway because the approval is already out there? What is that? Do you have a sense of what that looks like yet for you, Jacob? Yeah. So our current target is uh, treatment-resistant depression. And because there's enough novelty around the device itself, we believe this is going to be a PMA, um, which has advantages for us, actually, when you think about the defensibility of the technology. But the advantage, obviously, is that there's a, a wealth of clinical data behind simulation. So we're confident that we'll be able to develop that clinical roadmap. But because there's enough novelty around the device, there's the regulatory burden is going to be at the PMA level. And what is your uh, your fundraising outlook look like? Will you be out raising funds now? Do you have a sense of how long this process might take? I know it's always hard to measure that with any precision, but uh, <laughs> what how, yes. what is what are you planning for your life over the next four or five years? Yeah, so we're fortunate in that there's a, there's a ton of work developing prototypes that we've been able to, to transition over to the lab. So we're already demonstrating chronic preclinical data in large animal. We have a first in human interoperative result that we'll be sharing publicly in the next couple of weeks. The next stage is to raise funds, which we're doing right now, to begin an early feasibility study for targeting for the beginning of 2025. So as early as you know, January 2025, we'll be able to implant our first patients and we're raising around right now to support that. Terrific. Final question, Steve, again, from your perch of where you were at Medtronic, I'm sure you you saw a lot of new technologies like Motif. You're connecting your, your train to Motif, which sounds exciting. I'm just curious, though, from looking around, are we going to be hearing more and more and more of these really novel, innovative startups coming up over the next couple of years? Do you, do you see a whole new crop of technologies emerging? I think, yeah. I mean, the space has been cyclical. We saw a huge uh, huge wave, you know, 8 or 10, 12 years ago, a little bit of a quiet time as, as those sort of worked their way through. But I, I think we're on this kind of cusp again of a, a new wave. And, you know, it's driven by uh, more access to, to technologies than ever. There are great, you know, almost off-the-shelf neuromodulation systems that get you into that first clinical much more quickly than, you know, it used to be $150 million to develop a system and do a pivotal the the bar is just much lower with great you know tier one suppliers with almost ready to go devices out there. So I think the enabling technology is there, and I, again I think this sort of progress on the understanding of these networks, so the, the progress towards encode and decode, the understanding of the importance of the nervous system to functioning of organ systems, you know the bioelectric medicine space, you know I think those two things come together: the, the access and the technology and the mechanistic understanding or the First steps along that journey, at least, are a really rich place for a innovation cycle here to come. So I think I think Motif's on the front leading edge of that, but I think there'll be a lot of other people playing in the you know, playing in the space uh, over the next you know five to ten years. Fantastic. All right. Well, this has been a, a great introduction to Motif and into uh, the two of you as well. I really appreciate you both uh, joining us on the podcast. All right. Thank you, Tom. My pleasure. It was wonderful, Tom. Thank you so much, and. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed this. 
All right. Well, that is a wrap. All right. Uh, I realize now that I, we, Kayleen and I didn't do kind of an ending social media thing. So we'll have her back to talk about that. But of course, you can find Kayleen Brown on LinkedIn. You can find her on Twitter as well at MedTech Millennial. You can find Chris Newmarker on LinkedIn as in a new marker. So uh, make sure you connect with us on LinkedIn. Make sure you follow Device Talks and Mass Device and Medical Design and Outsourcing. Please, again, subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network uh, and share this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. It'd be great to uh, to have more people listen, to have more people part of these conversations. And when you do share this, please connect with us. If you don't share this, please connect with us. I'm really eager to be part of, uh, of your MedTech conversations going forward. And uh, love to hear what you're all about, what you're working on, and uh, what you think is coming next. So once again, join us at Device Talks West at the Santa Clara Convention Center on October 18th and 19th. You can find details on devicetalks.com. It is going to be a great two days. Uh, We'll have terrific keynotes. We'll be talking about, in addition to neuromodulation, we'll be talking about surgical robotics, neurovascular, cardiovascular, heart valves. Uh, We'll be covering lots of different uh, areas and uh, it's going to be, uh, and and we'll talk about uh, engineering and careers as well. Uh, Holly Scott of the Mullings Group is putting together a great panel, so uh, you'll you'll want to be there for that. There's just there's going to be a lot of opportunities for you to to learn how to med tech better and to uh, hopefully further your career as well. All right, well that is a wrap, folks. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode. Take care.